Hello there, and welcome to Music Speaks. This is the podcast that dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For this show, we usually have three co-hosts. My name, of course, is Sean Rukunis. You know, my friend Mary Haddix and my friend Hunter Sagona in his white t-shirt and glasses, always over there in his cool meat box. Uh, Hunter, Mary, and I believe that there are many people that have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers and everything in between. Our quote of the day comes from none other than the John Williams, and he tells us that composing music is hard work. <laughs> Plain and simple, which I, I truly believe. I haven't tried my hand at it yet, but we'll see. So a little bit about John Williams. Um, in a career that spans five decades, uh, he has become one of America's most accomplished and successful composers for film and for the concert stage. He has served as music director and laureate conductor of one of the country's treasured musical institutions, the Boston Pops Orchestra, and he maintains a, a thriving artistic... Um, Ooh, he maintains thriving artistic relationships with many of the world's great orchestras, including the Boston Symphony, the New York Philharmonic, the Chicago Symphony, and the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Mr. Williams has received a variety of prestigious awards, including the National Medal of Arts, the Kennedy Center Honor, the Olympic Order, and numerous Academy Awards, Grammy Awards, Emmy Awards, and Golden Globe Awards. <laughs> he remains one of our nation's most distinguished and contributive musical voices. Indeed, he does, and all his work with the London Symphony Orchestra too, um, which you know we talked about a little bit when we did our Star Wars one the other day. Right. Um, which begs the question then for those listening, you know, you know, this is not our first discussion of John Williams, mm -hmm. so the question is why continue a discussion on John Williams? And I'm sure everyone has their own uh, their own answer to that question. So, Sean and Mary, I'm curious as to what yours are. Ooh, 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 me, me, oh, ooh, <laughs> me, Sean. me. Okay, so I'll I just figure go it first. a spotlight. Yes, yeah, so I will. I will definitely try to make this brief, as I usually do not. Um, I think it's interesting that we continue our talk about John Williams because he's such a monumental and nostalgic composer, and we keep thinking about everything that he's done. And I love having conversations with people that they're like, he did that too, and that, and that too. And I think we're going to discover that more today, and I think that's really exciting for us to continue talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. When it comes to John Williams, there's just way too many things. You, you can't get it done in one episode. Yep, <laughs> you cannot talk about it all. And, um, you know, horn player here, going to throw that card early today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just have way too many, um, you know, fun things to do when we play John Williams' music. So... I'm absolutely happy to to talk about him for hours. So, <laughs> right, yeah. Especially since you both are, you know, you're both are brass players. I feel like, you know, sometimes in a lot of classical music, you guys are a little bit slighted mm -hmm. because it's like, you know, they write one bar for horn, and then you're like, okay, I'll wait another 175 bars before I come in. <laughs> um, you know, I'll do my taxes or something in the meantime. You know, but, he's done a little bit for trumpet here and there. You know, he's he's kind of given us a little yeah. something, something to boost our you know, egos. A little feature here and there. Yeah. Nothing big. And that's interesting because, you know, Hunter, before we continue, I just want to ask you, have you heard any John Williams music that features the clarinet? 
Um, well, you know, clarinet gets a gets a little solo here and there, but it's usually for not no long extended period of time. It's usually like the reiteration of the melody, but it's our turn to play it. Right. Um, yeah. You know, get get passed from instrument to instrument. But I can't say I know any of his pieces that are like featuring the clarinet. Yeah, and I think we'll figure that out in this next episode. And I hope you enjoy and listen and hopefully as well dissect his music like we are and continue this discussion. So we'll be right back. Hello and welcome back. So we are starting our first segment of this second episode of the discussion of the music of John Williams. And the first piece, you know, we, we picked up in 1977 where we left off mm -hmm. um, after the introduction of Star Wars. And we picked up with another space-themed movie that he mm -hmm. uh, uh, had a hand in making. And it is Close Encounters of a Third Kind, 1977, mm -hmm. which according to our omnipotent and omniscient friend Google... <laughs> Uh, Close Encounters of a Third Kind is described as a science fiction adventure about a group of people who attempt to contact alien intelligence. Mm -hmm. Roy Neary, played by Richard Dreyfuss, witnesses an un unidentified flying object and even has a, quote, sunburn, quote, from bright lights to prove it. Roy refuses to accept an explanation for what he saw and is prepared to give up his life to pursue the truth about UFOs. Mm -hmm. right. So... This features a little bit of a different score that from, from some of what Williams has done thus far. So Sean and Mary, what would you like to, what would you like to tell us that stood out to you? <laughs> Take it away, so, Sean. Sean, you? You want me to go first? Okay. Sure. Sure. I think something that's interesting is the way he starts the piece and the way, I don't think we've ever heard something like this before, maybe like Jaws. Is really interesting because it starts out with this bubbling sort of intensity and then it kind of builds but you know it's really interesting john williams interest in uh 20th century atonal music uh -huh. um and then his exploration of of that and the way that sort of forms and i think it's interesting the way that this starts because it starts with this sort of bubbling sort of string feeling you don't know how to expect and I love that it just kind of slowly builds anticipation. And I think at this time, we've heard Star Wars. We've, we've you know, kind of experienced a little bit of, of what that can really do and some of his really great work. And I think that's one of his first Oscars before Jaws. He got two Oscars, and now we're sort of leaning towards some really great writing. And I think we're really sort of leaning towards something that's going to be like the apex of his career. So we're really leaning towards his really heavy, great years of writing music. Um, so I think in the beginning of this piece, it starts out really slow. And he does an amazing job with anticipation. And I think there are a lot of great, a lot of classical composers that are able to do that very well. But using cinema to also affect the music is also something that's, that's really parallel is him working with Steven Spielberg is also another great collaboration that we should talk about as we're doing some of these, because most of these movies that we're going to talk about today is with Steven Spielberg. Um, and the collaboration that they work together is just very wholesome. And uh, like we said with Jaws, you made it really clear that when John Williams played the music of Jaws, he laughed. He's like, mm -hmm. this is really stupid. <laughs> I love it though. It's perfect. I mean, it's great. And then he watched the movie. And he's like, wow, this is perfect. Um, so in a way, the opening of this sort of really fits the scene of the movie because it's like 
this is the scene where you don't know what's going to happen. The UFO has just landed and you're kind of like, oh, what's, what's going to happen? It's kind of scary. It's kind of ridiculous. And as we're sort of making the transition from, you know, looking at all these different crazy things and then all of a sudden this big accent happens. And I think that that is an explosion in one of those like <gasps> kind of like uh, and he's so good at that. And I think we talked about that last time about how good he is at scaring audiences. <laughs> and he's maybe one of the original, uh -huh. one of the OG uh, scary music composers out there besides Bernard Herrmann, which was a, a key figure who he wa listened to and watched a lot of film scores with. Um, but Psycho's awesome. I yeah. think I think that's true. Psycho was definitely inspiration for Williams as he was going along, because um, of how simple it is. You know, it's we can talk about that music all day. But Mary, you, you continue. Yeah. What, did you, what did you notice about the opening of this? I mean, I really appreciate John Williams' uh, use of, uh, I mean, just how he orchestrates the piece. I think that it really effectualizes what you're getting at, like the, mm -hmm. the suspense. And um, we cannot overstate how masterful what Spielberg does as it connects to the music. I, I think that one mm -hmm. of the reasons that his movies are so popular is just that it all comes together in a very um cohesive manner as an experience and so um the first time that i watched uh close encounters of the third kind was um i think i was in middle school honestly wow. um hmm. but i think i listened to the soundtrack maybe more than i <laughs> i really remembered the movie um yeah, and, and like I, I read War of the Worlds growing up, and so I, I really loved stuff like that. But mm -hmm. at the same time, this this soundtrack just struck me. It it was just the way that he plays with um, like musical space and silence. Um, ha space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Boo. Um, but the way that he he deals with um, the emptiness between notes, it, it also makes um, these like spastic accents a whole lot more special right. in certain ways. Um, the uh, the use of the cello in this um, entire opening too is just um, a really neat contrast, to be honest. Um, and you can get some some really neat sounds. Um, but I mean, if, for my for all my John Williams experience, I probably have the least experience of this movie. Mm. But um, the whole soundtrack, though, it's just it's kind of revolutionary what he did to to create the horror sounds, and mm. Um, mm. it still has the John Williams ring to it, despite it being very different than what we've heard so far. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hunter, it's very true. Um, you know, the first, you know, obviously John Williams is a master of, you know, tension, rev uh, tension and resolution, but the, the beginning of this piece is just riddled with dissonance, um, mm -hmm. which is really the crux of the entire score, I think, um, because that tension is something that you're looking for um, in a movie with a tone like this, you know, not necessarily where it's conflict resolution, but where it's unknown and, and where it, there's, you know, uncertainty that... The, the dissonance in the piece, I think, is like uh, almost symbolic of that. And, you know, it keeps the audience on edge, right? Mm -hmm. If you're building to 
you know, if you're building with this dissonant chord, like it's seconds or if it's even, um, you know, minor seconds, you're building, building, getting louder and louder. You expect some sort of resolution. It's not happening. And then you have the big hit in the, in the beginning, right? And it, there's a lot of that throughout the piece. So it really adds to the suspense. You know what's also interesting, guys, is that as much as I love school, I keep learning that everything I listen to is more minimalistic and more minimalistic as I think about music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that this piece has those tendencies where he kind of copies and pastes a lot, but he mm -hmm. also kind of keeps the, the musical framework kind of very normal and also kind of formulaic. So we have these moments that lead to anticipation. And then he kind of builds on those with some sort of really good theme. And then again, he comes back to this sort of anticipation. But also, in a way, I think he's a really great job of really setting the scene. And Hunter, we talked about this within like the maybe first two pieces we mentioned before this. Um, but he's so good at that, you know, and within the minimalistic idea, he doesn't necessarily need to over explain what he's doing. And he understands that as he's going along. And that's something that I think he's really picking up on and giving him those Oscars because he doesn't have to over explain in the music. He keeps it simple, but he also creates an environment for the audience to react in time to what's happening through the music. Yeah. In my opinion. Actually, okay. I hadn't thought about that perspective before, uh, <laughs> but that's a good way to put it. Um, so one thing that I also really enjoy about this piece, um, I think separately from a lot of his other stuff, um, he just, I, I think it has to do with the dissonance that Hunter brought up. Um, everything is so closely written. Uh -huh. um, it just, it never really lets up and it, the tension that it creates is just so perfect for the premise of the movie. Because you, you also have to think about how many alien had, uh, movies had come out around the time that this one was. Like in the in the 70s, we really hadn't seen very many, at least none that, I don't know, that broke the scale <laughs> as much as, no, you I mean, know. The, the day the world, the day the earth stood still was when, six late 60s or maybe I, I don't know when exactly when it was but that was probably like the biggest alien movie yeah so um I, ju I just think it's interesting you know Sean's discussion of minimalism here it it is almost out of place and for me like he just he does it so well comparatively to like the Star Wars and the Raiders March um oh 1951 for uh Day okay, so it was earlier than I thought. Mal, yeah, I, I didn't realize that was it was that early, but um, I just I think it's important just to to recognize again how um I shouldn't say avant garde, but um mm -hmm. how new like this new style that John Williams has brought to the table, which comes from classical music, like uh, um we kind of started to split the bill around the forties, I think, uh -huh. <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, kind of drawing back and doing more with less. Well, I think it's interesting, Mary, that you mentioned that because one of, like I mentioned, Bernard Herrmann was one of John Williams inspirations for writing because Bernard Herrmann wrote a lot of great movies. There were a lot of really great scores. However, 
like you said, he was moving into a new style of music, and that style of music that he got into was because of Max Steiner. And Max Steiner used neo-romanticism in his music. And there's a score, I can't remember exactly Gee, what the... <laughs> yeah, thank you, Hunter. And then I think it's interesting that as we're going along, we sort of see elements of that being placed within his music, mm -hmm. but also the elements of minimalism in this piece, because I think it's really cool the way that he's framed it. And he understands the audience is looking for something more scientific, but also something kind of creative and intuitive. So with that, he then writes this piece that has these minimalistic impacts within the music, which I think is really cool. And I think that has this impact of very slow, methodical process of writing music. I agree. I, I and we can't ignore because like there are still emotions in the in this music. Like just the dissonance alone, it creates this right. like unkept kind of anxiety. Um, right. But it, it's just kind of. It's kind of cool because we we talk about like the really big John Williams scores and um, you know we'll talk about uh, a few more again later. But um, mm -hmm. some of them really have just these huge moments where there's hundreds of people sometimes trying to make noise simultaneously. And so uh -huh. you think about these these other scores. At, mm -hmm. Did you say this one got him a, an Oscar too? I believe this um, one got him an yeah. Oscar. Yeah, and like even just considering how little he does and still is able to create musical emotion. Mm -hmm. And that way, um, I think it brings um, just something completely new to the table. Cause if you fast forward and you think about um, movies with electronic soundtracks now, mm -hmm. um, the same kind of minimalism can sometimes be understood like a, uh, you know, one input, two input, three inputs max for certain things. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's still just important to recognize how much you can still do with that. And um, one thing that I know uh, we talk about it in musician circles is our, you know, um, portrayal of new music are uh, not necessarily opinion because no one really cares if you're paid to perform, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I've met a lot of people that just uh, new music isn't really their their niche, and so um, I think John Williams bridges that gap between old and new very well. And part of it comes from the orchestration, and also just like the addition of cinema, I think helps for that to to come to new audiences. But um, it, it's a really um, nice score for it to be put put in a movie that you know eventually wins an oscar it's just it's it's awesome for um like music adaptation in some ways yeah and i think it's really interesting i'll give it back to you in a second hunter i think it's interesting that the way that we're, we're looking at the music is also we have to look at the time that this was written too because we're at the crux of great 20th century writing but we're also at the crux of really great filmmaking with steven spielberg so John Williams, like you said, was kind of caught between two lines of saying, oh, I love atonal music, but I know <laughs> I know that I, I don't like, I know listeners don't always enjoy that. So he does it so perfectly where he tiptoes that fine line between the two differences of the atonal music to the uh, use of uh, classical music. In the romanticism for you, Hunter. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Continue. Yes. No. Well, to that point, you know, obviously, mm -hmm. some works are more influenced more heavily by the other by other 
uh, artists. And with what well, you said, Max Steiner, and for those who don't know, he was mm-hmm. one. You know, he was a famous composer early early twentieth century, mm-hmm. and he did movies like Gone with the Wind, which obviously has a very massive score, which definitely could be seen as an impact on the next John Williams score that we're going to talk about, which is the um, the first, well, I guess it's the, the, the first major incarnation on the big screen of Superman, which for those who, who don't know, Superman was in 1978, it was a year after. So I guess we're still talking about aliens, <laughs> but in a different way. <laughs> Um, I don't know why he keeps getting those movies, Hunter. I don't know he why does. he keeps getting high. He really likes space, right? He does, Star yeah. Wars into Close Encounters, into Superman, even though it's on Earth. Um, and for mm. those who don't know, if you happen to not know, the description of the movie is as follows: Just before the destruction of, of that, sorry, just before the destruction of the planet Krypton, scientist Jor-El, who was Marlon Brando sends his infant his infant son Kal-El <laughs> in a spaceship to Earth, raised by the kindly farmers Jonathan Glenn Ford and Martha Kent Phyllis Taxer. Uh, young Clark Christopher Reeve discovers the source of his superhuman powers and moves to Metropolis to fight evil. As Superman, he battles the villainous Lex Luthor Gene Hackman, while as novice reporter Clark Kent, his secret identity. Uh, he attempts to woo co-worker Lois Lane, Margot Kidder. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Sean even has a note here. The OG! Mm. Um, <laughs> this was the first major incarnation of Superman, and it sort of inspired every other adaption since, whether it be, you know, comic, whether it be animated, whether it be on film. Um, and one of the major tracks from the score is the flying sequence, slash can you read my mind which um i know is a particular favorite of sean's so the only thing i'll say before i pass it over to you two is that i think you know more than any of his other scores it's interesting that it's a the movie is about this superman right this this incredibly powerful um almost godlike person who is uh feared and adored by people depending on you know but usually adored and yet the score seems to be one of his most delicate scores. Um, I think there's a there's a there's a a gentleness to a lot uh, even in the grander moments because there's a lot of grandeur. But even in the grander moments, there's a delicate uh, there's a delicate touch to it. There's like a softness to the score to this movie, which you know there's a harp in the background that's constantly being interspersed throughout that might add a little bit to it. But also just the orchestration of the strings in general, I think, makes it so gentle that you wouldn't necessarily know this were from a superhero film because it's not really about him being a superhero. It is, but it isn't. You know what I mean? There's like an emotional depth to it that I think Williams does a really good job of conveying through the music. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about the alternative take of the track in a little bit, <laughs> but before we move on to that, I want to hear your guys' thoughts. So uh, I'll take this one. Um, I mean, one thing that I have always appreciated about his brass writing is just the ease of it. And one thing, like, especially when we get new or newer pieces, you know, in band and things, uh, it's always a toss up whether or not they really know how to write. 
for um for instruments uh -huh. um you'll get like whack things that oh that should have been in the trombone part or oh i don't know how to actually do this uh -huh. correctly so i'm gonna fake it like you, you see things that just may not have i shouldn't say been thought through because composers are intentional and we should appreciate those things but like sometimes fitting the bill is a little bit harder than you know we really are expecting in some ways. And one thing that John Williams just does so well is everything just fits within, like just orchestrationally, he knows exactly what he's doing in, in certain ways. And so um, not that we're talking about the main theme today, but for instance, the main theme, um, it's written on like the, the open tones of, of the instruments. Um, and when you think about uh, just physically, like how, how to maintain that as a brass player, it's very free blowing um, and there's an ease to it. You can get a, a real sparkle on, on trumpets <laughs> at that point on, on a C trumpet where it's, it's all the open notes. So, um, but you know, there's just something to be said about uh, how, I shouldn't say how easy it is to perform, but how well that John Williams set up you know, the orchestra in order to be able to, to create um, some of these textures physically, like uh, what he's calling them to do is, is um, in comparison, like some composers just don't know how to really do that as well. Um, so it's just, I just wanted to note, cause especially like we're gonna talk about Can You Read My Mind? There are just some really beautiful things that he does and they're all still idiomatic, you know, for the most part. Um, we're not like reinventing the wheel when it comes to to sound, and I think a lot of that also has to come from some of the harmonies that we hear. And can you read my mind too? But especially, like I was thinking about, uh, you know, the main theme and how easily it will lay for uh, brass players in general. So, and a lot of his melodies mm -hmm. do that. Like um, we can note in some of the later movies as well. And I think that's something people don't generally think about as a listener because, you know, mm -hmm. not everyone is, is specifically musically inclined. They're not looking at it from a musician's lens, but, um, you know, that how well it's written for, you know, like you said, for a specific instrument, the technicality, how, you know, is it in the sweet spot of the instrument, you know, that, that good range, technically from a, from a fingering standpoint, is it maneuverable, uh, which, you know, is, is more, not, not to say that brass doesn't have uh, fingering issues, but, you know, and, and woodwinds, obviously, it's, it's a lot of buttons on a woodwind. And um, I think that when a composer understands the challenges for a specific instrument, if they give them the melody in that particular part, you know, a, like you, you mentioned that it's freeing. There's like a freeness to it if it does happen to work for them. Like, you know, clarinet, if we're able to just play, you know, using our, our main six fingers, there is a, I don't want to say mindlessness, but like you can focus more on the musicality of it rather than being concerned about hitting the notes, you know? And I think that goes for just any piece, not necessarily soundtrack music, but... Hmm. I think it's something that people tend not to think about when they're listening. They're not like, oh yeah, I could tell that's really like, that must be easy for them. Or, you know, that sounds like they're having a good time. 
they, they tend to focus more on like, if it's faster, oh, that must be really difficult to play. They don't think about the opposite. Oh, is that, are they enjoying playing that? Is it easy to play that? But anyway, that was just an interesting mean, thought I had. It's absolutely a good thing. Cause like what we want right. to do is remove ourselves from the music as much as possible, typically when we perform. Um, but at the same time, like it's important to note that like uh, John Williams made it easy in, in some ways. So um, can't take all the credit for making it pretty in some ways. <laughs> um, I don't know. Sean, what do you think of, of uh, this soundtrack? How much time do you guys have? Um, <laughs> we, no. we know it's on your top, right? It is on my top 10. Yes, it was on my top 10 when I when, I, when you hosted my podcast, Andre. Yep. Um, just because I, you know, like, I could go on forever about this piece, but Mary said it really well. So I, I'm going to do sort of a summary. Um, something that's interesting about this piece is that, you know, it's aesthetically pleasing. And you yes, listen to Mary. it, and it was very hard for me to write comments because all I wanted to do was just kind of absorb it, take a bath in it, and just kind of like, I know that sounds weird, but yes, exactly what I want to do. Um, and both of my co-hosts are like, come on, Sean. Get it together. You don't take baths. And that's true, I don't. That's why he's the host. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm the, that's where all my money goes, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Yes, no, I, I love this piece because of how expressive and how beautiful it is. And every time I listen to it, I think about my dad and the first time that he showed it to me. And that always meant a lot to me because he was sharing a part of himself. Um, and that also made me a nerd because as my fellow co-hosts know, I have a clear infatuation with the MCU and clear infatuation for the DC universe, especially the older movies as Batman and Superman. But I also, I do love this stuff. My friend Hunter over there is also a huge fan of my friend Mary is also a fan. I'm not saying that there aren't fans. I'm saying that I also enjoy their movies as well. But I think that this one is also the OG of superhero movies. It's one of the first superhero movies that came out and definitely changed our perspective on what soundtracks could be. And then, guys, again, we could talk about this for hours, but the development of, of soundtracks for superhero movies over for how long? Um, but I think it's interesting because when we think about this, this particular track, we think about the complete opposite of, of, you know, Hunter, you were right. We are talking about another alien. But uh -huh. in a way, we're, we're really kind of exploring the heightened ideas of, of love and affection and like, you know, someone who's willing to kind of put themselves on the line. But also, it's just, it, this is a, just a beautiful um, scene in the movie. It just, it just them connecting with each other and just kind of seeing each other for the first uh -huh. time, trying to find their vulnerabilities, which is really cool. I mean, obviously, people keep, like, people always says, you know, like, the issue with with those now newer movies is you can say that they're, you know, it's kind of hard because a lot of people say, oh, I don't like Thor, I don't like Superman because they're gods, and you really find their their emotion in their in their movies. But we can find them within clear moments like these, and they really do touch us, um, and they really do move us to to levels where we might not expect them to go. And I think, I think I mentioned this on my on my on my original podcast where I said that. Just like you, Hunter, if I was going to share a really warm John Williams piece, it would probably be this, just like Yoda, uh -huh. where you do feel something when you listen to it. And that was hard for me as I was working on this podcast. This was the one that really was like, I, I don't want to type. I just want to listen. I want to 
absorb much of it as possible. And um, it just, and like you said, like nostalgia then leads to feelings and feelings then leads to how you're actually kind of doing. And taking this, this theme of, you know, this love theme is, is just so moving and so perfect. And, you know, <clears throat> if I can cross into the next section of this piece, which is not the alternative take, let you take that hunter. But <clears throat> I think it's interesting that as we're going along, we're then looking at some really cool, like, talking into the music. And Hunter, we've actually seen that with his first piece of music, where you can actually hear talking yes. within the music. So there's a little bit of combination of the both. But it's really cool that the way Marco Kidder comes in and reads the stanzas, it then follows the lines of the music and then makes more sense as we're going along. And... I love how cute it is. It's so simple. It's so easy, but it's also so lovable. And I love that about this piece. And it brings a lot out of me. That's not ugly, but I'm a very ugly crier. I do, I do give it that. But I do think about the way that it moves me. You know, it definitely moves me to that that next step. And you know, I I feel a lot. And listening to Margot read those words as the music is going along is just kind of magical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. It's very interesting uh, and unexpected. Obviously, if you don't know the, the the piece, when she starts talking, you're like, "Wait, do I have another tab open?" <laughs> you're like, "Is that a YouTube ad that's or something?" Right. No, that's right. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it does lend up uh, an extra emotional component to the song because obviously, mm. you know, she's the love interest of the the movie, and therefore her words obviously hold a lot of sway with people who are following the main character. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting choice. And right, just like John Williams' first piece, where they kept the dialogue in the soundtrack, um, the intentional, you know, putting it in here, mm -hmm. it obviously must have worked for what he wanted to yeah. convey with the song. Can we talk now, about the alternative take? Is that yeah? Is that so okay? That's what I was just gonna say. Was, okay. All right. Now moving to the alternative take. Yeah, uh, which was you know also written at the same time, and it's a it's a version of this this theme. Mm -hmm. uh, anyone who listens to it, the only or it, rather, if you've never heard it, the only thing I can say is music. It's like <laughs> 1970s in the mall. And I was gonna say in the elevator. It sounds the like elevator, elevator too. I mean, it was it was everywhere. Yeah. Um, isn't there a, a scene where he's in an elevator? I don't remember. Where he's like walking be. in an elevator and he's like, well, I mean, the elevator. No, I think I'm thinking of Spider Man. Planet. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it's this, it's this very modern. I don't want to say modern because it was all written at the same time, but it sounds like a very modern instrumentation with mm. the synth. You got to love that synth. Mm. Um, very 19s. You know, it was a 78 or no? Yeah, there's a 78. I think. Um, yeah, 78. And it just sounds very period, but it also still has that emotional weight to it because yeah. it is the theme, but it's also written in a very unobtrusive way, which was the intention of Muzak. So, you know, it's sort of just like, it's recognizable, but it's also not distracting. I don't know what you guys, what you guys feel yeah. about it. Yeah. You know, I'm glad that I shared this with you guys. I'm sorry, Mary, but I'm just going to say something real quick. I know I told I talked too long, but I'm just going to just briefly no, go for summarize it. what I want to talk about. I think it's interesting how he places Easter eggs in his music from 
other pieces of music. And one thing that I want to just mention quickly is the end of the piece. It's just very nice. Obviously, Hunter says music. I think that's right. Obviously, it's just sort of like a nice filler, blah, blah, blah. And then right at the end, as we're sort of making our way back to orchestral, we then hear... Bom, 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 bom. I think it's really cool because you have this love theme and then that pops in. So you can't really not notice the, the main theme of the movie, which is really important. Um, right. And I love telling the story that I there's a ride at Six Flags where you can you can sort of get immersed with all all this music and you can listen to it and you can sort of accept it. And uh, there's a really great ride they call it the Superman Man of Steel ride. And one of my favorites is as you're going up the ride, you can hear all this great music. And as you're going, bom, 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 and as you get to the top, bom, 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 and you fall as soon as you get there. And the ride is so tall, too. And then as soon as you get to the top, you're just going to plunge. And you're bump, bum, 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 bum. Oh, it's really cool. And I recommend those who haven't been there go check that out because it's such a cool experience and oh, it's gosh. so wonderful dude we should do uh an episode just on like the music of a music amusement parks and how it affects yeah, um, yeah right. we gotta do that mm. at some point we will do that yeah um one thing i wanted to add to this whole conversation of superman is so originally um they did not offer the job to Richard Donner, who is the director of, of Superman. They actually offered it to Spielberg. Um, mm. And uh, really? yeah, and part of the reason that he did not get it was because they were waiting to see how Jaws fared. And so <laughs> Jaws like broke the box office and then, um, you know, it was just this big deal. Uh, anyways, Richard Donner uh, ended up getting the job because um, Spielberg went and did 1941, which we'll talk about. Um, but anyways, that also affected the um, the original composer was Jerry Goldsmith, actually. Really? Mm hmm And um, that would have been different. Yeah, it, he. I think it's because he had. Yeah, he had already worked with Donner at one point. I think he did the Omen, and he had an Academy Award for that score, which was interesting. But um, because Superman was um, like a, a longer commitment, um, he mm -hmm. he signed out of it. And since Star Wars was a big deal, they were like, "Oh, John Williams," because that's everyone. Um, but another thing about this movie that I think is really neat. And especially now, because like, what's the best part of a Marvel movie, guys? Like, what do you stay for? The, the post-credit scenes. The post-credit scenes, which means you yeah. experience the entire credit scene. And like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know about you, but I actually get really fascinated about, you know, seeing actually who did the things. Um, so no, it's very interesting. So, and it usually has a great score to it. Exactly. And so the score, the credit scene or the credits to this movie, to the original Superman, at that point were uh, the credits itself cost more than the entire movie up until that point. Um, really? It's also I think it might be the longest uh, in credits. Mm, yeah, it's it's uh, the end title sequence is more than seven minutes long, and it was a record at the time of, of like 1978. Like no one had done seven minute long credits before. Um, so I, I think it just it speaks to Richard Donner as a producer. He's like, yeah, let's make you know a thing out of it. It's its own chapter. <laughs> um, and at the same time, like uh, just the gorgeous soundtrack. Because I mean. 
at a point, it is just reading names <laughs> at a point. So like, it is just experience of the music in some ways and of course like that's not so true now because we get these giant cinematic stills often um for credit scenes especially like the marvel universe it's a whole art form now um but i think that this movie brings um substance to the credit scene and has created some really cool opportunities um in both cinematography and um in film scoring anyway um i think that you know, like when you go on Spotify or uh, any of the streaming and you look up soundtracks, a lot of the times the credits music, the track is one of the starred tracks. Like it's one of the, the favorites. So yeah. at a point, like you can visualize it as even more money goes into that. But I, I just think it's cool because super like the original Superman, first of all, was supposed to be a, a Spielberg goldsmith film and then it kind of found itself to uh richard donner and um john williams and um i think richard donner even did most of the second one too even though i think he was fired off that set but um <laughs> yeah but i you know it, it's just it's interesting to note that the credit scene gained so much uh maybe not popularity but um attention yeah that's a good way so that's interesting. I didn't know that. And if we were speaking of the Marvel Universe, you know, if this were like a what if episode, you know, we would be saying what if Spielberg and Goldsmith did Superman? How would it be different? You know, would it be? As oh my gosh. Like, it would be so like, I, I don't I couldn't even be. I think it would have been darker. Like. I, a lot darker. Yeah. yeah, and this Superman, just to, to maybe like wrap us up a little bit, um, this Superman just creates such a positive and bright, like Sean was like, it's so much love and it's great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with, trust me. Um, mm -hmm. But like just some of the, the colors and again, going back to the ease of some of what he wrote, um, it all portrays this really like bright image of, uh, you know, um, just like a uh, super powerful being. Um, and it's just, it's interesting to hear how it is portrayed in the music in some ways. Um, yeah. But mm -hmm. that emotion is there the entire time and the aesthetic that you get with the John Williams score. I also wonder what it would have sounded like if Superman were written by Jerry Goldsmith in some ways. So, mm -hmm. and then in recent years, obviously we've had Hans Zimmer's score mm -hmm. for the Man of Steel adapt uh, adaptations, uh, which does lend the darker tone to the concept. So it's like, you know, you explore each of the different sort of realms of how the character could look. And this is always the one people look back on and say like, you know, most, you know, you ask like particularly our parents' generation who lived through, like that was their, uh, that was their thing. Um, that's the def it's the definitive concept of what superman you know was and should be and you know that you know so clearly it still resonates with people mm -hmm. and on that note i think we should take a quick break and it will be sponsored by our friends at anchor and for all of those of you listening uh, if you like these podcasts, please think about subscribing. And if you would also like to contribute to the podcast, please consider going to anchor.com and search Music Speaks Podcast. And you can reach out to us, and then we can have you on if you would like to be on, or if you'd like to contribute in some other way. You know, we'd always love some sort of help. 
So now here's our anchor sponsored break, and we will be back with the early 80s John Williams and his career. Welcome back to Music Speaks. We are talking about John Williams today, and we, we just left Superman in 1978. Um, the next uh, movie that we are going to talk about is 1941, which came out in 1979. Um, and uh, a synopsis of this movie, um, in case you don't know. So after Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor, um, the residents of California descend into a wild panic, afraid that they might be the next target among them are Wild Bill Kelso, which is portrayed by John Belushi, one of my favorites, a, a crazed National Guard pilot, um, Sergeant Frank Tree, who is Dan Aykroyd, a patriotic straight-laced tank crew commander, um, and then Ward Douglas, uh, portrayed by Ned Betty, um, a civilian willing to help with the American war effort at any cost, and Major General Joseph W. Stillwell by Robert Stack who tries to, his hardest to maintain sanity amid the chaos. So um, I think that this movie, uh, it hit at a time that was very relevant um, and created a lot of opportunity um, just to showcase some of, of John Williams' um, music. Just cause like a lot of uh, stuff we've talked so far about is fiction in some ways, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and more than others. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so you think about the kind, uh, like the the audience that's going to see the new Superman movie versus the people who may be going to see 1941. It may not be the same audience in some ways. So um, I just I think it's a interesting opportunity to discuss uh, the. Um, receiving of his score for this particular movie but um i've never played this personally but you two have right yes we have <laughs> what a great segue thank you mary yeah, yeah no we did it yeah high school yeah you know what's year. weird is i went to a performance of this piece uh the summer before at tanglewood and i remember talking to a friend and i was like this is really cool i think we should try to do this and then i think we brought it up to the the teacher and he's like yeah okay you know whatever we should try it and we read it and it was really hard because high school players aren't really the greatest musicians in the whole world they don't remember how to play accidentals but however yeah. it was a really great experience because it was just a really fun piece and i remember being able to watch the video montage of all the really great actors in this movie like john candy is in this movie who's also very funny uh, and like you said, John Belushi is hilarious in this movie. So you had some really great comedy people in this movie and made it really just one of those great, funny movies. Um, you know, it's very interesting that we're now talking about marches because the next piece we're going to talk about is also a march. Um, but John Williams is definitely of the Sousa mindset when it comes to marches. He has definitely a formula for writing all of them. It's definitely clear of, of when, you know, certain instruments come in. It's pretty obvious. And um, something that's interesting about the way things are sort of set up is, you know, you have your main theme, you have the same theme again, and you have a new theme, and then you have the same thing again, but you have the contrapuntal motion in the trombones. And we've seen that from time to time from various other composers. So I feel in a way, Charlene isn't doing really anything new here. 
but I think it's very formulaic and I think it makes sense and it's definitely enjoyable to listen to. Well, it's definitely, I think 100% an homage piece. You know what I mean? I think mm -hmm. it's, you know, he clearly was like, okay, I need to write something military esque. So who better to, you know, who better to, uh, look to than, um, the March King, right. For, uh, especially for yeah. the United States, which was Sousa. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a teacher who uh, <laughs> used to say, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. Um, and not to say that John Williams was copying Sousa, but clearly, <laughs> like you said, it, there was a lot of influence there. And mm. it's something that resonates with audience because, you know, you'd he, without even knowing what the movie's about, mm. without even knowing the title, I think if you played this piece, someone would probably say, oh, that's the military movie or it's a movie about a war or, you know, something, right. even though it's, uh it's a has a lightheartedness to it i think clearly they would know it was some sort of military movie yeah so um one thing that i've always found neat is uh when you look at the the scheme of, of all the spielberg movies like this one is regarded as the the redheaded stepchild the one that <laughs> this is the failure and i mean it compared to like jaws and close encounters it didn't even like register um right. and there's I, I saw a picture once of joe belushi like wearing a shirt that said uh steven spielberg 1946 to 1941 deceased like <laughs> um, it was That's really funny yeah it was regarded around everyone as this kind of uh oddity that happened right. um and yet still like spielberg says that this is his favorite john williams march um yeah. which i find yeah. interesting um because the next one's also pretty good too exactly yeah. um and uh there's all there's another piece of trivia that it, it's not relevant to the music exactly but it definitely affected music on the set so um this movie in particular was just so loud. Like think of the new things they were doing in Hollywood at the time too. Um, all this, uh, like the the war machines and props and stuff. Um, but it was so loud on sets that like Spielberg had to literally shoot a prop machine gun for cut like half the time. <laughs> so yeah, so it creates, you know, like you got to think about, you know, the atmosphere of the backstage too. And then the movie comes out and it seems like kind of a flop. I don't think it broke a hundred million. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's all kind of funny. And then we have this experience of the soundtrack that is very different. And it has us bringing up all these, you know, like, yeah, it sounds like this. And it definitely sounds like what it should. But when you think about the actual, like, uh, reception of the movie in some ways you know it, it creates this kind of paradox and uh it's just it's it's funny to me i couldn't uh miss uh mentioning some of that right can't agree more yeah yeah but you know in terms of the marches and you know uh the history of, of Sousa and how um important to the the march culture that his music was um, or still is, you know, <laughs> um, I think, I don't know, there's at least like one group in every state that does like a March Madness gimmicky concert <laughs> where it's like 30 different marches. And I mean, I wouldn't mention that, but again, the horn player here, you know, it, it's um, important just to note, you know, that like marches can really... Um, 
I don't know. They they still portray uh, a whole lot of character despite having an initial reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know if we were to play both 1941 and uh, Raiders um, like comparatively, um, you could hear some some differences maybe in context, um, in probably orchestration in some ways. Um, and yeah, like, definitely, yeah, definitely formula way it, it it is similar. So it does have similar contexts of, you know, almost in, in that same fashion where when you hear uh, the the end of 1941 that goes uh, we all know the mel- the melody that goes bum 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 and then we have the trombones that come in and go but it's also that's also a march form aspect of, of writing that's something that you would usually do in, 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 a, in a march you would give the trombones a chance to pop out of the texture in that sort of contrapuntal way in similar way you have um right at the end of of uh, the raiders march you have um the trumpets go yum ba-dum, ba yum ba da but also by that that same standard, you have the trombones that go. You have the trumpets go. So you sort of have this contrapuntal motion happening between the two voices, and that doesn't really happen until the end of the of the form. And uh, as you were mentioning, Mary, there are substantial similarities. The melodies are the same. We have different sort of feelings around different kinds of motion. We have more heroic sort of feeling. Uh, 1941 is a more goofy. However, I feel like within Raiders and 1941, we can sort of look at them both and say, what are they both doing really well? It's that he's keeping the same formula for both for both of those compositions. Well, is there anything else that you guys wanted to say about 1941? I sense this is a good time to introduce Raiders as well. No, I think we can. Yeah. Around. Yeah, not that I could think of. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are a lot of um, distinctions we could make, and yet inherently there are a lot of similarities just in the style and the form that March calls for Sean's right. Um, but onto another blockbuster, um, <laughs> which has, is still, um, you know, continuing. There's a new one coming out next year. That's right. Um, and it will have John Williams, by the way, um, as well as Harrison Ford. But, um, anyways, Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in 1981. Um, and, uh, so the main theme of the movie is this this Raiders March, and uh, for those of you that don't know, um, well, the original uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark was uh, based on this archaeologist professor um, portrayed by Harrison Ford, and he clashes with like uh, Nazi forces, uh, Nazi forces um, looking for the um, the Lost Ark, which um, is a uh, historical relic that is uh said to um render an army invincible um and so uh it's you know a typical uh adventure-esque um movie and if you guys haven't seen an indiana jones movie uh you're way behind the times so anyways <laughs> if you don't get the gist of it please look it up but <laughs> go watch the movie please <laughs> yeah but um what have you been doing with your life 
oh, better things than me, I'm sure. Um, anyways, <laughs> uh, but this particular march, when I think of John Williams' march, my mind immediately goes to Raiders of the Lo uh, the Lost Ark. Um, and I think the first time I played this, I was in like high school and it was a dinky little arrangement, you know? And, yeah. and uh, it's just been, it has been, I shouldn't say overdone, but of many things, I think this might have been overdone just yeah. a little bit. Um, and yeah. I, th I think it's kind of just because it is a march. Mm. Um, and marches, uh, like we've said, are all, um, they're all like pretty similar um, for, for the most part. Like there are a handful of things that don't sound like the other. Um, but they all have this similar undercurrent of, of beat and rhythm, the pulse. Uh, Often, you know, the march tempo is 120, bump. like you, you have to have it on lock in some ways. So um, when it comes to hearing um, this Raiders of the Lost Art, um, it has an interesting opening, um, I think, that kind of sets it apart. Um, and you get this, like, um, again, I think there's a potential to talk about weak and strong beats here. Um, but... Mm -hmm there's a really sense of, of strong beats every one and three of the measure. Um, so, uh, because much is also can be portrayed into often bump. So on, on the half beats of the measure, if you were thinking one, two, three, four. So, um, I was going to come with my entrance, Mary, you kind of just stopped right there. I was going to come and Yum, ba -dum, boom. You really <laughs> led us nicely with the, and then Hunter was going to come in with his entrance. Oh, I love it. I love it. There we go. I should have kept going. Okay, next time. Next time. Um, but I, I just, I think it's, uh, it's really cool how he sets up this particular march. He gives it sort of a um, cresting over a hill kind of uh, intro. Um, and I think that's very reflective of like the plight of Indiana Jones in some ways too. Mm -hmm. um, especially cause like when you think of, of adventure movies or like, you know, he just was Superman for Christ's sakes. Like <laughs> the next hero that you get is an archeologist. And cool. I, I, I just love that honestly, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. from a, a story standpoint, there's a lot of Part potential there. Part-time. Oh, that's, that's true. Part-time archeologist. <laughs> Part-time. He needs a day um, job. Okay, but I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, Hunter, what did you think of, of Raiders of Lost Ark? When's the first time you watched the movie? Oh, gosh, when is the first time I saw that? Oh, God, it was years ago. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. I actually remember as a kid, I saw originally, um, like, my, my father is just, he always has movies on. So, like, as kids, we saw, like, pieces of various movies. It could be the end. It could be the middle of all these different ones. And I remember he had Temple of Doom on, and that was the first one that I saw, um, not all the way through. It was a piece of it, and I was like, oh, dear, what are they doing ripping people's hearts out? Um, and spoilers. then, yeah, spoilers. <laughs> I won't tell you who, though. Um, and then I remember my, my parents were like, oh, well, we should watch, you know, all, you should, we should watch the three of them at the time because the fourth hadn't come out. Um, and we watched this one and I think what struck me most was obviously, you know, the music because I, I, I knew at the time John Williams also did Star Wars. And so I was like, oh, I could, I could hear a lot of the similarity, but I liked that it was 
the it was different from like you know obviously it's it's an adventure film so it doesn't have like the same grandeur that a, that a sci-fi or a fantasy film would have it's a little more grounded in reality being a march i think it makes it feel a little more close to home um which is ironic because a lot of it is in foreign countries um but i think the march aspect there it you know it does it's a march but it doesn't sound as military-esque it doesn't sound as Sousa-esque as Mm. 1941 does which i think helps set it apart from the fact that this is an adventure movie it's not a war film and even not you know even with 1941 having a lot of comedy in it you know it's still primarily about a war and this one is as well it, it does deal with world war ii and it does deal with the nazis but in an indirect sort of way because it's more about him versus the 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 nazi lieutenant or whatever his his title was who was racing him to find the the ark mm -hmm. it's not so much about like the grand nazi army it's more about like indy versus this guy and they're both trying to go for it uh mm -hmm. and obviously you have all the fun characters along the way which i think this is a fun march so it's all sort of encompassed in it and the melody of the song it's this very progressively upward building melody, you know, so it's like, it keeps getting higher and higher until you So I think in a way it, it sets itself apart from some of the other songs that or other pieces that Williams has done because it, I don't know. I feel like I'm sort of rambling with it, but I think you get what I'm trying to say. I think. Yeah. So. I mean, I absolutely appreciate that. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, this is totally separate. Um, so one thing I don't know if we've talked about much is um, like the sound effects and the creation of um, some of the more special effects, like especially in this movie, um, in the early eighties, we start seeing more, um, I don't even have a good word for it, but like the, the punching, <laughs> yeah. you know, like mm -hmm. the, the, the face to face combat that you see in movies. Like, of course, you know, we've seen it in other movies, but I, I think this is the first movie that I actually realized the, the sound effects that were happening. And so you think about like what we do to portray, um, different actions and things like outside of the soundtrack, you know, I, I'm just, I'm thinking about like, if you fast forward to, you know, how the soundtracks to like Tom and Jerry, or maybe yeah. this is, this is backwards. Rewind. Ah, yeah. Rewind. Um, but if you think about how the soundtracks to like little shorts are made, think envision like two dudes in a room with a camera and a TV watching the cartoon with like, a smorgasbord on a table in front of them of stuff. Yeah, you know, and you get like random um, noises that come from the pots and pans. Um, you know, you can like, I there's just a, no end to to um, what you can use. And um, one of the pieces of trivia I've read before on Indiana Jones is that the the noises of all the punching um, uh -huh. that they had in this movie it was created by. Um, hitting a pile of leather jackets with a baseball bat. 
which I think is just hilarious. And if you have followed Harrison Ford, it's like symbolic. <laughs> it way. is. It really is. Like, I, I just, I find that so funny. And you got to imagine, like, at, at what point did we get to a pile of leather bats and a baseball bat? <laughs> like, or, uh, leather jackets. Like, why did we get there? And then it makes you appreciate the soundtrack so much more because there's craziness going on like that too. But this, I mean, the same guys that are engineering the, the sound of the soundtrack, not necessarily, you know, John Williams at a certain point is saying hit a, a pile of leather jackets with a baseball bat. But, you know, someone down the line of sound engineering is, is saying we need to do that <laughs> to create the body blow noises. Um, uh -huh. I, I just think it's so cool because... Um, well, I had a professor who said that Sorry, real quick. I, I, no, I had a professor who used to say that the soundtrack of a movie is a combination of the dialogue, the sound effects, and the music. So all three of those things are incorporated in a soundtrack. So you can't really talk about a soundtrack truthfully unless you talk about all of those things. Because like you said, the sound editors and the sound designers, they're, you know, they're thinking about every sound that will come out of the screen, which is more than just the music right oh the last thing i gotta say about radios the lost ark is that um it i mean in terms of when we think of of big soundtracks you've got like the main theme and the love theme like in mm. in most every like every movie on this list at least except maybe jaws um <laughs> yeah that's it's the shark's love theme yeah can you imagine <laughs> Loves the boat. <laughs> wasn't that what the bomb bomb bada bum bomb? Wasn't that what was wasn't that the love theme? I'd say that's curiosity. Okay, all right, fair, fair enough. <laughs> you know, um, but in, in this particular movie, um, you know, the, the March theme um with uh Marion's theme um is an interesting um relation. because uh, like Think about it, um, going back to Superman, because it's familiar. Um, mm -hmm. The entire soundtrack, in some ways, like the main theme connects uh, orally to, um, uh, I'm, I'm blanking. Um, it, it connects orally to like, can you read my mind and stuff like that. Um, it, it's at least within the same wheelhouse of, of um, I don't know, colors and, and orchestrations in some ways. And so um, I think that the like themes as a whole on Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, actually, you know, one thing that Williams just does so great is just portraying the aesthetic of the movie. Um, he really keeps it in, you know, the actual point uh, of it. And it's very clear um, no matter what uh, style he's writing. Uh -huh. And if you always don't true. mind me adding something, I think it's really interesting that there's a really great story where I, I think John Williams was getting presented an award for uh, life achievement for uh, for being a great American composer. And Harrison Ford was there. And as Harrison Ford was, was walking on stage, the music of Raiders of the Ark came on. And he's like that damn music it follows me everywhere <laughs> i think it's interesting and then as as he's going along he's like you know i even had to listen to this music during my colonoscopy 
<laughs> and he said, he said, you know, there's that's not a slight to you, John, but it's 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 so great to have a melody written by you because it then means that you know the world of the character is it comes more alive. And I think that's where the world of of Indiana Jones comes alive through that music. We all get excited when we listen to that kind of music. So mm-hmm. I'm just very happy to to share that. And that's a really great uh, piece of information that I learned about Harrison Ford that he listens to Rage of the Lost Ark while he gets his colonoscopies. So, <laughs> fair enough, yeah. Oh gosh, I mean, we could do our like an individual episode on all of the themes that have been portrayed by or been associated with Harrison Ford. Yeah. Um, his legacy is just—he's uh, one of my favorite actors. Anyway, um, I still—I can't believe he's coming back for Indiana Jones Five too. That's right. Um, I always thought, like, after um, you know, getting a little off topic here, but well, we'll get, get move on soon. But um, which one after the the third one? Which was hmm. Lost Crusade. Uh, Lost Crusade. Yeah, I was gonna say Holy Grail. I'm like, this is not Monty Python. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you Very know, it totally was. Um, <laughs> but um, after that one, like, I didn't really, you know, when it comes to serial movies, like, you get at past three, mm. and only Harry Potter can have seven books. But yeah. not, not really. But I guess we're still going with Indiana Jones, and it's, it's just. It's awesome that they have kept Harrison Ford. You know, I I think it really it speaks to it. And also, you know, like John Williams has done all of them, and he's going to do the fifth one. So it it provides us a case study of like how his music has evolved. And of course, like it's Indiana Jones, so like the f- main theme is already written for him. Uh, you know, it, he can he can copy paste in some ways, but it also you know that would be interesting to go and compare the 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 Raiders March from each of the movies and see how they compare. Um, but anyways, uh, I think it's time to uh, take a break again um, after that awesome discussion about Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, um, anyways, if uh, you want to contribute to our podcast, you can find us on Anchor at Music Speaks. Um, we also um, have uh, you know. We are on Twitter, we are on Instagram, we're on Facebook and TikTok. You can find us at MusicSpeaks underscore pod on Twitter or MusicSpeaks underscore podcast on Instagram and Facebook without uh, the underscore. And then on TikTok, we are at MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. And again, we're going to take a break sponsored by uh, our friends at Anchor. And don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Okay, and we're back with my friend Mary Haddix. My name, of course, being Sean Kroonis, and my friend over there, Chef Sagona. Been ready for the <laughs> throwing up the pot for some more John Williams. The uh, next song we're going to talk about is from E.T., released in our the year of our Lord, 1982, and the song we're going to listen to is Adventures on Earth. Ow! All right. Who wants to go first? I was going to oh, follow Sean. <laughs> You're going to follow me? Okay, yeah. go ahead. We're following the leader. Yeah. You're going to follow. You want me to go first? Sure. Okay. So this one was a long one. Hunter, you did not send me the one minute recording that I asked for. No, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. This one was great. I do love this one a lot. Um, and I think it's interesting because as we're going along in this one, he does a lot of those tendency things that we mentioned in Superman and a little bit in Raiders where they hint at themes. But 
you know, I think if John Williams decided to not become a composer, I think he would have became a writer, like of of literature, in a way, because mm. he's so great at writing um, out stories and storylines for characters. And I think it's really beautiful that he then takes that and then takes all those themes and then reuses them again in 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 this in this work, very long work. Um, and the themes are so beautiful in this. Um, and then one of my favorite moments is uh, as everything is coming to a climax, we get this kind of a huge explosion and then it kind of dies away. Right back to that sort of first thing we talked about with Close Encounters where he then leads us with, with some anticipation. And like I said, I think John Williams is a great writer of music and writer of, of feelings and uh, Joe Hisashi, he's coming for you, so watch out. <laughs> nah, no, I'm kidding. Um, so kind of get on that, and I think it's kind of interesting that that's the way that we're, we're, we're thinking about his writing is how his, his, his feelings almost write, sound like romantic novels in a way. Um, so, so Mary, what, what did you think? Um, well, I mean, uh, I, I love this movie. I haven't actually watched it in years and years and years, mm. but I remember seeing it when I was very little. Um, cause this one came out when my parents would have been, you know, around high school. Um, and they got married in the eighties too. So it, it was it, at a time where they, they experienced it, you know, at the right time. So I saw it as soon as, you know, I was able to, in some ways, uh, much like Indiana Jones as well. Um, but one thing that I can't, uh, not um, mention when talking about E.T. Um, was just the entire credits um, situation as well. And did we, is Adventures on Earth the, the credits? Adventures or? on Earth is the scene that we use to get to the spaceship. That's what I, I thought. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I didn't I think, think so. Um, because the, oh, so it is the one at the end of the movie. Yeah, yes. I got you. So this whole sequence is, um, I mean, it's noted as one of John Williams' uh, more significant moments in cinematography, because mm. um, they they tried recording this several times, trying to to match it to the film. Um, and Spielberg eventually he like took the film down as Williams was conducting and was just telling him to conduct it the way he would at a concert. So um, they subtracted the film at that point to to get a more genuine musical connection in some ways or to make it more comfortable for for john williams and when he did spielberg like re-edited the film to match the music and um this was uh it's a rare occurrence for that to happen normally the music is is edited to match the film in a way um but he he got an academy award for this one uh best original score yep and uh, he also did um like a, at some point I think there was a, a bowl game where he did the same thing um, with the LA Phil um, in like 2013, where he, he did like the um, the ending of ET on the jumbotron too. So it's just it's an interesting um, occurrence, just because in most in most things the the movie comes first, the cinematography is um, what comes first, and then the music is not necessarily reactionary in certain ways, but it is edited to to match the progression of the film. And so I think it speaks to not only Spielberg's um, prowess as a 
as a director, but also John Williams' um, skill as as a conductor and as a communicator on the podium. Um, because, like, think about it the uh, the emotion that you feel at the end of this movie. I I couldn't tell you honestly any other John Williams movie that puts you in a place like the end of ET. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's just it's so weird too because like if you compare it to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, like that's a very different kind of of um, curiosity about the third kind, you know? Mm-hmm. And in E.T., through the mind of a child, uh, we get this really complex uh, emotional connection to um, to something. And maybe it's because E.T. kind of, you know, seems like Yoda too, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole nother story because, like, ET is actually Easter eggs, by the way. Um, uh, ET actually does show up in Phantom Menace, um, and actually, I can't remember, but I feel like, uh, let's see, yeah, it. I mean, in ET, there is a Yoda costume at some point, so mm-hmm. I, it like kind of makes its rounds. But right. um, yeah, I just the the pure emotional connection we get to this music at the end of the movie. It's it's just cool to to note that they did that first, and the movie came later. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it also speaks to the um, you know the uh, the relationship between director and composer, right? Because a lot of times the director has his vision and it's sort of laid out, and you know the, it tells each department what they want and you know you you have to make it work and of course the director tries to work as best they can with each department to make the the vision work but when the director will when the director cuts out and says you do what you're gonna do and we're gonna make it work for you Mm, that speaks a lot to how highly that he must have thought of williams and his work because he's like clearly this score is necessary for the movie this is what we want so in order to make sure we can get it in the film we're going to go so far as to recut the the scene from the movie to make it work for your score because we don't want you to change your score we'll change for you yeah you know and that speaks a lot to the reverence for a direct for a, a composer by a director yeah which is always it's very refreshing to hear of something like that and i mean you know a lot and more and more you're seeing uh, directors coming into into their own you know newer directors who do have a good appreciation for the power of the score you know what i mean you're seeing a lot of people who are either placing more emphasis on the score or or are seeing the score as a more involved piece of the filmmaking process rather than an afterthought um i mean i don't know if you've seen like the some of the documentaries that um they've done about some of the recent movies made like um you know they did the the gallery for the mandalorian and they Mm -hmm. did um even for for frozen and for wandavision you know both disney you know coincidentally all disney properties but you see the directors in these different pieces um they they've really sat down with the composers and they've told them what they want, but then they really listen to them about like, they have a creative process that they're going through. And in order to make sure that they can do what they feel is best for the score, the director takes a step back and says, okay, tell us what you 
are going to need in order to make that work. Right. Rather than I feel like sometimes if you go back to say Steiner's time um, for like Gone with the Wind, you know, he obviously he wrote a massive score for that, but I feel like that was probably the director said, here's the movie right to it. You know what I mean? Like, because it's not going to, we're not going to change what we're doing here. This is what it is. Yeah. Whether that's, you know, because I mean, you're right. There absolutely is a difference. And we have to thank, you know, Spielberg and John Williams, uh, just for giving the composer more of a, a presence um, with movies like the Megalo, uh, whatever that Hans Zimmer has has made <laughs> is definitely resultant of of some of the efforts of John Williams at this point and um, um, of Spielberg. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, at the same time, like uh, with Gone with the Wind, it also might have been a question of literal like technology and because oh, yeah. um, that was fifties, so it, it yeah. right mm -hmm. maybe Gone with the um, wind. wasn't that like thirty eight? Yeah, probably. Something, something like I'm, that. I'm really, really poor with, with movie years. Like, no, I, that's yeah. okay. So, um, but it, it Ooh, definitely. I was close, 39. Ooh, yeah. look at you. Yeah. But, I mean, you also have to think about, like, te technology and the limitations that it might have also um, uh -huh. had at that point. Um, was it really possible to, to go back and edit a single? I, I don't, I have no idea, but it, it's just something to consider as well. But you are definitely right. I can imagine that they gave him the movie and we're just like, here, finish it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great segue for us to get into the next song. Um, this next one had us puzzled for a while. We said, are we gonna do some more Star Wars? Are we gonna do some more Indiana Jones? And Folks, as, as listeners, um, you're probably thinking, oh, we're, we're fighting a lot. Yes, we are fighting like crazy. Hunter was throwing yeah. things. Mary was pushing Hunter. I was just kind of like in the mm -hmm. background. I'm like, guys, what, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I think it's interesting because when we're thinking about this next work, which happens to happen at the end of the uh, 90th, uh, sort of near the 1990s, but we're going to get close there by, but with 1987, which is Empire of the Sun. And uh, Mary had made the connection to the piece of music we're going to talk about called Cadillac of the Skies. But for those who don't know Empire of the Sun, let me just quickly fill you in. Again, internationally renowned director, who do you guess? Steven Spielberg captures the powerful story of a sheltered young boy separated from his parents and forced to endure the ravages of war. Based on the autobiographical bestseller by J.G. Ballard, this epic drama chronicles Ballard's remarkable struggle to survive a childhood filled with betrayal, death, and disappointment trapped in Shanghai during World War II Japanese occupation. I, I want to say right off the bat, I think this is a beautiful movie. I think that just like the opportunities that are given to John Williams through Steven Spielberg, I think this is a really beautiful piece of music. Um, and I believe that this piece is written like a hymn in a way, where you mm -hmm. have the setting and then maybe you have a little more of the same setting and then it returns to that same sort of feel once again. So there's not really anything new. There's a, li there's a little bit of a minimalistic aspect to it, but that's because it's a hymn. So. So in a way, I think it's written very well. It's very beautiful. Um, and, you know, just like that Superman 
thing we just listened to. When we talked about Yoda, it almost feels like a, a month ago, Hunter, we talked about how personal and how slow it is and just kind of how delicate it can, it can mm -hmm. make us, us feel. And uh, John Williams, you know, friends, when I listen to these slower works of his, he does a really great job of, of I hear, I feel very warm when it's into those kind of very slow music. And I think that this piece of music is, is quite brilliant and also very beautiful. Um, it is a very scary movie, however, and very full of intense and drama, but it does have those relaxation moments. And I think this is a really beautiful moment that we can think about in the movie. Um, Mary, you were the one that came to us and was like, please, let's talk about Empire of the Sun. Um, I don't know. I think that yeah. it definitely was Sean that wanted to do Cadillac in the Sky <laughs> so bad. But again, you know, we were trying to throw around, do we do another Star Wars? Uh, yeah. Do we move on to the 80s? I don't know. Or uh, to the 90s. But um, yeah. I definitely, I thought Empire of the Sun was, um, it, it's so different than a lot of his other movies. It is a standalone. Um, and I mean, Forgive me if I'm wrong, but I don't think a majority of John Williams scores are, uh, they're not exactly nonfiction. And Empire of the Sun, um, while it isn't necessarily nonfiction, it does portray, you know, real life events and um, it can reach a part of us that maybe, you know, uh, the caped commander cannot. Um, so it, it's just, it's interesting. Again, you know, in the same sense of 1941, the difference in audience that m may come to something like that. And that was a comedy too. So yeah. who who knows? But um, <laughs> Empire of the Sun um, would engender a different um, character out of the audience in general in, in some ways. And like the connection to to um, the main character of the movie and um, the soundtrack itself, especially like by the time you get to Cadillac of the Skies, the place that the soundtrack has already put you in um, is uh, quite different than a lot of the movies that we've talked about today. So I, I agree with um, the hymnal, uh, you know, um, like the, the this piece definitely has some some sacred tendencies in a way, um, and it's per, um, portrayed and presented in a way that give it certain weight, um, like emotional weight. Um, and I think again, you know, something to be said about how uh, John Williams uses um, musical space to create. Um, emotional commitment and um to really because i again you know you never know that you're feeling something until it's gone and so in some ways um right. this piece in particular some of the quieter moments in it it's it's like everything leaves and it leaves this this hole for me uh -huh. personally um which you know that is is akin to a lot of what the main character may have been feeling um but Again, I, I mean, Empire of the Sky is just, uh, it stands out from the rest of the filmography, in my opinion, just because it, it is very distinct. Um, I don't think I could compare any of his, his other movies to it, like John Williams, I mean. 
I don't think I know Empire of the Sky, but I do know Empire right. of the Sun. Sorry, uh, I, I meant. <laughs> I'm Sorry, I didn't kind of like the sky. The kind of like the sky. But Empire of yeah. the Sun definitely. Empire of the Sun is very good. <laughs> um, Hunter. Yeah, no, I think that you know we you've been throwing the word hymn around a lot, and part of that, it, you know, part of what makes something a hymn is obviously there's a choral aspect to it, and not a great deal of the Williams music we've talked about thus far has had any sort of vocals to it, unless you count um, the reading in uh, "Can You Read My Mind," but. I think in general, and actually this is something we talked about or that I talked about with um, one of our uh, one of our guests uh, way, way, way back, um, Joseph Melvin, Joseph, yeah. was that he talked about the incorporation of choir into any piece adds like a human aspect to it. Right. And that's something that that reaches very deep into us. So, you know, Mary, you said it does. It does the, the movie itself, the type of movie, reaches us in a different way because of the uh, because of the subject matter, um, and that it's more grounded in reality. But I think also, you know, when you add a choir into something used as grandly as he does, especially in this piece, um, it really has a way of reaching the humanity in us to a point where we do the the connection we have with the main character in that at that point would be so much more yeah. um not to say that the instrumental uh part of the score is not beautiful because it is yeah. but the vocals add an extra layer to it that i think really humanizes the the really the uh players in this case the it really humanizes the the orchestra right. um because obviously there are people singing so that is, they are humans <laughs> but um I think for the listener again, it's not something they think about. Right. So that's just my opinion. Right. Well, friends, it is so great to talk to you about a cause and a, and a love of a composer that we just can't get enough of. Um, John Williams, if you're listening, wow, I can't believe you found this podcast, first of all. Second of all, you are a great man, great lover of music and someone that i just i feel like gets and understands situational aspects of music so thank you for that uh the next time we're going to sit down and talk about some more john williams we're going to talk about the 90s i know there's some people out there who are very excited for that mary and chef hunter included um but we'll be back and uh take care and again listen to what you love so here we go All right, and I'm back with Chef Hunter and Slim Shady Haddocks, and my name, of course, being Sean Ancunas, and we're finishing our talk about today with some John Williams. And again, thank you, John Williams, for always blowing our minds with your great music. Uh, friends, let's quickly discuss what you learn about music when you listen to John Williams. Mary? Um, well, I mean, uh, again, just as a horn player, he's brought so many... Um, amazing solos and uh, features and the list goes on and on. Um, horn and movie music also has uh, a very interesting character. Um, but we have a lot to thank John Williams for just, um, I think I've played 
I don't know, I've played a lot of college concerts that have included music by John Williams, just somewhere around. And like, we also, at one point, um, uh, my uh, conductor, when I was an undergrad, he also would transcribe stuff. And so this one concert he did, um, it also included uh, American Psycho, like a transcription of the the soundtrack from, from American Psycho as well. Um, and that was a really neat comparison just to, to get to do and, um, it brings so much more respect to uh, for me to like John Williams as as a master orchestrator. Um, I don't know when we go listen to um, like classical music. Like if you listen to a Mahler symphony, um, Mahler is uh, regarded as one of the the great orchestrators uh, of the Romantic era, and um, just hit how his. Um, how his writing interacts between voices and um, the colors that he's able to get from the ensemble. Um, and it is n no, in no way comparable to what John Williams is doing because of the, the cinema and things, but um, I, it's definitely, you know, something to... Uh, sorry, that sounds like a plate. It <laughs> does sound like a plate. Someone's but... Yeah, someone's getting hurt in there. I better uh, not say no good. Sorry, squirrel here, squirrel here. But um, anyways, yeah, I just I have always enjoyed John Williams' music so much, and to really get to talk about him and and dig into his soundtracks and and this sense and really, you know, kind of talk about what makes it tick in certain ways has been fun. So thank you uh, for this concept as well, Hunter. Uh, for me, I mean, I don't know that it's something something new that I've learned, but I think the discussion of his the, the particular pieces that we listened to today, I think, only reinforces the idea that you know, cinema. It, it's I don't want to say the backbone is the, is the music because it's not the um, because clearly you know filmmakers you know they they all have their idea of, of what the crux of a film is, but I think if you take away the soundtrack. The, the humanity behind, you know, the emotion behind what you're doing, a great piece of it is lost. And composers who know how to really portray the heart in their music, you know, you mentioned Sean being, you know, a storyteller of emotions, like as John Williams is. Yeah. Composers who know how to do that, like him, I think, are great assets to the film industry. And they really should, I think, be given a little more of the, the spotlight, so to speak. So, if that's all we've got, then my name is Hunter Sagona. My name is Mary Haddix. And for Slim Shaddix and uh, Chef Sagona over there, my name is Sean Kunis, and keep listening to what you love.